0: The reading today is taken from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 6 and 12 to 22. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Well, good morning, for those of you that don't know me, my name is John, I'm on staff here at Christ City, and today I have got the mammoth task of talking about the resurrection of Jesus, which is is arguably one of the most outrageous of all of the Christian claims, but it's also foundational. If you're a visual learner like I am, you'll have noticed in our Christology series a general downward movement. We started with the pre-existent Son of God who who condescends to us at the incarnation becoming a man and then humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. This week, however, what I want us to notice is that there is a change in direction. There is a a turning point in the story. And so today I'm going to make the claim That the resurrection of Jesus isn't just the turning point in the story of Jesus, but it's also the point at which all of human history turns. I'm going to do this by looking at three dimensions of the resurrection that we see in our 1 Corinthians text. So we're going to look at, first, the resurrection as history. Second, the resurrection as a new humanity. And third, the resurrection as hope. So history, humanity, hope. First, the resurrection as history. In verses 3 and 4 it says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The first point is a simple one, but it's important. It is the affirmation that the resurrection of Jesus actually happened. Now, it may sound obvious, but the truth of the resurrection, the truth that this event actually happened, is the big point to make here. You see, when we look at the life of Jesus, as we have been in our series, often the big point to make, the contentious point, is an interpretive one. How do we interpret the event? So for example, if we look at the birth of Jesus, there is no one who argues that Jesus wasn't born. We all agree that Jesus was born, but it is a uniquely Christian contention that Jesus' birth was an incarnation. We interpret it as God becoming man. The the same is true for Jesus' death. You see, it isn't contentious to say that Jesus died. In fact, it's not contentious to say that Jesus died on a cross until you say, as we do, that it was an atoning death, that it was the Son of God taking upon himself the sins of humanity. When it comes to the resurrection, however, the main point, the point of contention is in the happening. Did it happen? In verse 17, it says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You see, if it didn't happen, Paul says, Christianity is worthless. If it didn't happen, your faith, my faith, all of this is pointless. It's important that it happened. Now, you'd think that in light of that, I would spend the entirety of our time together giving you evidences for the resurrection, giving you proofs that it happened. But I'm not going to do that. Here's why. Partly because for most of you watching, you've already put your faith and your hope in the risen Christ. And so, in that sense, I'd be preaching to the choir. But also, interestingly, notice that that's not where Paul spends his time. Notice Paul's context. Paul is living in a time when his challenge is not to argue for the resurrection of Jesus, but actually to argue from the resurrection of Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. Paul's argumentation in our text goes something like this. There are some people who are denying that there is a general resurrection of the dead. They're basically saying that there's no life after death. But here's the problem. He appeared to Cephas. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some say that there is no resurrection of the dead? He's saying, How can some of you say that there is no life after death when we have seen life after death? We have seen Jesus risen from the grave. In Acts 1.3, it says that Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. You see, the reason why Paul doesn't spend time arguing for evidences of the resurrection of Jesus, because the evidence For the risen Christ, for Paul's generation, is the risen Christ. You see what I'm saying? The resurrection was a widely witnessed, documented, historical event. And as a result, Paul, and indeed the whole of the New Testament, don't spend their time arguing whether or not it happened. But what does it mean that it happened? Now, before I move on, I want to make one further point about the resurrection as history. Now, it happened. Yes, but with historical events, we always have this option, don't we, of leaving them in the past, of keeping them at a distance. In 49 BC, for example, Julius Caesar famously crossed the Rubicon River, and the result of which is understood to lead to the rise of the Roman Empire. And it's all really, really interesting, trust me, but honestly, who cares? Who cares about a 2,000-year-old event? Why not leave it in the past? Why not leave Jesus in the past? Why should we care any more about Jesus than we do about Caesar? Well, when you think about it, the answer is quite simple and obvious. It's because Caesar is dead. You see, the very nature of the resurrection the very nature of this particular unique historical event is that it necessarily imposes itself on our present situation because if Jesus is no longer dead, he's alive today. You see, we can affirm the historical Jesus and live with him at arm's length. We can distance ourselves from him as an important historical figure that we consult with once in a while whose moral teachings we sporadically furnish our lives with. But when we affirm the resurrection, we are confronted in the present by the claims of Jesus, by the risen Jesus. Tim Keller puts it like this. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Now, I once heard a story of a pastor who was furious at his congregation, frustrated with with the way that they were leading their lives. and, And in a fit of rage, he said, if Jesus could see you now, he'd be turning in his grave. Now, I hope That you recognize that that's funny and ludicrous and disturbing the bankruptcy of such a statement illustrates the danger of missing this first point if jesus is dead we can leave him in history who cares what he says but if jesus is alive we are confronted today by jesus the risen christ and all of the claims that he makes about himself and about you and me. So, point one, history. Point two, humanity. My second claim today is that the resurrection is the beginning, the inauguration of a new humanity. Verse 20, it begins, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Well, what is Paul doing here? Um, In order for us to understand the Adam and Jesus comparison, we have to first understand the Genesis story. You see, we understand Adam as the first created human. We read about Adam walking in the garden in intimate relationship with God. And then we read about his subsequent disobedience from God, which resulted in the separation between him and God, a separation from the very source of life itself. And the Old Testament could accurately be described as a faithful God patiently loving and pursuing a wandering offspring of Adam. Now, we know this story, don't we? But what's interesting is what Paul does with it. You see, Paul doesn't just interpret Adam as the first human experience, but in some sense, as the archetypal human experience. He's not just the first human, he's the representative human. The language of in Adam is to say this, that we too have this rebellious, faithless, wandering nature. We too have gone astray. We too have turned our backs on God. And this comparison of Adam and Jesus is to elevate our view of who Jesus is by saying that in Christ, there is a new representative. What we have in the story of Jesus is not simply an anomaly in human history, but it is the beginning of a new human history, a new humanity. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright writes, the message of Easter, which is where we celebrate the resurrection, is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ. And that you're now invited to belong to it. Well, the question is, what are we invited to belong to? We're invited to exchange Adam's disobedience with Christ's obedience. Adam's lost intimacy with God, with the very intimacy of the Godhead. Adam's inheritance of sin with an inheritance of righteousness, the humanity that was damned to death in Adam has been raised to new life in Christ. And so the question, what does it mean to be a Christian, can be answered in Second Corinthians 5.17 that says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. You see, what it means to be a Christian is not simply to live better lives, but to be given new life by Christ. What it means to be a Christian is not simply to do new things, to pray, to read our Bible. It is to be made new in Him. Dane Ortland puts it like this. Christ was not sent to mend wounded people or wake sleepy people or advise confused people, or inspire bored people, or spur on lazy people, or educate ignorant people, but to raise dead people. Our greatest need is not advice. It's not information or knowledge. It's not inspiration. Our greatest need is resurrection. And what we can claim as Christians is this, that we were, in Adam, dead in our sins. But through faith in Christ, we have been raised to newness of life. And I want to ask the question today, do you know this? Do you know this for yourself? In a a season where it feels as if the trimmings of our Christianity have all been pruned away, unable to gather, hearing a sermon through a camera. In a season where it feels as if the bad news in the media overshadows and drowns out the good news of the gospel we need to be encouraged that god in christ is making all things new and he's beginning with us so first history the resurrection of jesus is a witnessed historical event with present implications second humanity the resurrection of jesus is a new humanity that we are invited to participate in today. And third, it's hope. In order for us to truly understand the resurrection of Jesus, we have to know that at the heart of the resurrection of Jesus is the hope for a resurrection for us. In our text, Paul is is addressing a particular group of people that are arguing that there's no general resurrection. Arguing that there's no life after death, but this isn't a niche question for just a few of us, is it? This is almost the fundamental human question. Faced with the unavoidable, imposing reality of death, the existential question is raised, is this it? Is this it, or... Is this part of something bigger? The sin that surrounds us makes us hope, doesn't it, for something more, something better, something beyond. But death raises doubts. In answer to the question, is there something more, our culture seems to give us two options. Now, I'm going to call the first option secular pessimism. And the second one I'm going to call religious optimism. The secular pessimist might say something like this John, look, the idea of life after death is nice, but it's wishful thinking. It's the sort of thing that we tell our kids to comfort them to sleep. 100% of people die, no one raises. This isn't secular pessimism, John, this is realism, unfortunately. The religious optimist, on the other hand, might respond by saying this, surely our inner longings for something more, our inner longings to be part of a bigger story, to have meaning beyond the 80 years. Surely there must be more. C.S. Lewis famously once said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Surely, there is ultimately life after death. Does our soul not say so? Now, I don't know which of the options feels more plausible to you or more palatable. Maybe you're vaguely hopeful. Or maybe you've resigned yourself to pessimism. If you hear nothing else today, let me tell you this. In Jesus, there's another option. It's not the pessimism that denies our seemingly innate desire towards bigger meaning, but it's also not just religious optimism that that simply wishes for something more, hopes for something more with no grounding. Paul's argument isn't this. Wouldn't it be great if there was something more? It's we've seen something more. We've seen Jesus risen from the grave. J.I. Packer who recently passed, said it best. Optimism is a wish without warrant. Christian hope is a certainty guaranteed by God himself. You see, neither Paul nor Packer had to settle for vague hopefulness or resign themselves to hopelessness that had no grounding, had no substance, had no weight to it, But they could hold to a hope beyond the grave that had a grounding. The Christian hope, Christ city, has a name, and his name is Jesus. Now, just this week, I was reminded of the hope of the resurrection. Sarah and I got talking to a woman called Susie. Susie lives in our neighborhood, and she's in her 70s, and we had the honor, really, of Hearing a bit about her story, she told us that both of her parents were Christians. And uh, when she was younger, they both got sick and she prayed that God would heal them and made a bargain with him that she told us that he didn't come through on. They subsequently both died in quick succession. We had a chance to pray with her graciously and I told her to listen to the sermon Uh, so Susie, if you're watching, uh, this is what I wish I'd have had the presence of mind to say at the time. At the end of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul points us to the ultimate implications of the resurrection. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory O death where is your victory O death where is your sting the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to god who gives us the victory through our lord jesus christ susie your parents faith in christ gives them hope It means that they will rise again. In Christ, God came through on the bargain. So we've learned that the resurrection of Jesus was a widely witnessed historical event with present implications on us now. That is, it's an invitation to participate in a new humanity. But it's also pointing to a day when death is swallowed up in victory. It's a future hope. A hope that says, even when faced with overwhelming despair, there is ultimately victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, would we know the truth of the resurrection? Would we know today the power of the resurrection in our lives? And would we know the hope that we have of the resurrection? Amen.